State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by the KP Movement Institute, offering online and in-person coaching services for those seeking pain-free movement, peak athletic performance, or to improve their overall health. Whether you've been training for years or are just starting out, the coaches at the KP Movement Institute will create a personalized training solution that fits your specific needs. Not only will you optimize your movement and function, but you'll be educated, empowered, and inspired towards a healthier and more active lifestyle. Contact info at kineticperformance.ca to set up your complimentary consultation today. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. This week's episode is part two of my conversation with Dr. Stuart McGill. For those who may not know Dr. McGill, you have undoubtedly been touched by his research at some point in your career. He has spent the past 30 years researching the causal mechanisms for back pain to try and understand how to rehabilitate back pained people and enhance both injury resiliency and performance. He is one of, if not the most highly sought after expert in spine biomechanics around the world. In this conversation, we dive into the realm of common causes of back pain and spine injury, and Dr. McGill provides some practical steps that you can take for yourself or for your clients to minimize the risk for back pain or begin the rehabilitation process. If you haven't checked out his website, BackFit Pro, or some of the McGill Method courses he provides, or any of the literature he has written from books and textbooks to over 240 research articles, I suggest you get on it because there's a lot of reading to do. Let's dive in. Welcome back. Part number two with the one and only Dr. Stuart McGill from BackFit Pro. Thank you again for joining me. Uh, part one was a blast and uh, I look forward to getting into a little bit more about the rehab injury pain side of things. Uh, we talked a lot about kind of coaching some myths in part number one. Uh, I learned that I have to watch rowing much more carefully to find out what type of stroke that they're using. But uh, thanks again for joining me, Stu. Oh, my pleasure, Adam. I've always been interested in the back and back pain, primarily because I've had back pain before. I was playing baseball and uh, started to get a whole lot of SI joint pain. I don't have a lot of hip internal rotation. So every time I put my foot down, I was too far internally rotated. And then when I twisted, it all went into that SI joint. And uh, it's been a, a pain for a long time. And so I can appreciate the debilitating nature of back pain and how it is something that when it hurts and it, it shoots up, it can be, it can take you off your feet. It can be one of the most uncomfortable feelings that you ever have. One of the things I know that you talk a lot about, and it not, we'll get to SI joint in a little bit, but you talk a lot about micro movements as being one of the primary things that goes on and causes a lot of pain, what most people would term as non-specific back pain but micro movements is being a big piece of that. So first, what are they? 
how do they originally, like how do they develop and then what can we do both from if you do have back pain to minimize them, but also as a trainer, how can we cue these types of things to help our clients who maybe don't know? Okay, I think there's about five questions there. So if I, I screw up six, six. Okay, questions. if there was if if <laughs> I if I screw up the logic and and the flow through this, please correct me. Okay, so micro <clears throat> a normal healthy joint has a range of motion, and it is controlled by stiffness, by muscle connective tissue around the joint, and that kind of thing. So let me start with a model of a knee. And by the way, all of these models are created by dynamic disc designs out in uh, Nanaimo, BC. And the spine work uh, is based a lot on what we discovered in the laboratory and clinic over the years, but uh, they're now branching out into other models of the body. But these are the most biofidelic models uh, for showing mechanics and injury patterns, mm -hmm. etc. So a normal knee slides with the femur on the tibial plateau, as you see, guided by the uh, collateral ligaments here. But the anterior posterior shear mm -hmm. uh, is controlled by the cruciate ligaments, the posterior and the anterior. The posterior has been torn, ripped off. So you see now the ligament, the, the, the joint shears, and these are micro movements mm -hmm. that will trigger pain. Uh, if you do a drawer test, you're testing the shear stability or the neutral zone or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And uh, it will often mimic the pain. Now, over time, the knee will become arthritic because you're now putting stress risers or concentrations into the cartilage, uh, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the surgeons will say, well, that is the beginning of the end of the degenerative uh, cascade that's going to occur to that knee over time. Mm -hmm. So now let's uh, talk about my area of expertise, which is the spine and how do micro movements occur there? First of all, you can't see this on MRI or X-ray or anything like that. Consider this joint is normal. It has normal stiffness. Mm -hmm. The L3, L5 is normal down here, but L4 has been damaged. It's lost stiffness, just like I showed you with the knee. Now I'm mm -hmm. going to apply a general torque. Watch, do you see how the majority of the motion now is taking place at the joint that's lost stiffness because it's been damaged? You yeah. can't see it. Now you can test it orthopedically. It's, it's quite easy to find. Yeah. But uh, you know the pain pattern is the person says, well, you know, I get right SI pain, pain doing this activity. My left uh, thigh starts to burn when I do that. In other words, if the pain's migrating around, it's almost always there's a micro movement occurring at the joint. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so it's joint laxity creates micro movements. Now you'll see the two facet joints at that level painted red. They too are experiencing the majority of the movement. And over time, they will become fat and arthritic, uh, etc. So just like with the knee, uh, micro movements in a spine are uh, the beginning of a cascade. Mm -hmm. Now, if a person has micro movements, and there's many tests that we use uh, clinically to determine uh, what triggers them, what causes them, 
and and how to control them. So an abdominal brace where we a trainer might coach uh, a client, push your fingers in laterally to the navel and now push your fingers out and hold that brace. Learn to breathe behind the shield. Now tune the brace. We might do a heel stomp, for example. And uh, if they're unbraced, that triggers their pain and then they tune their abdominal bracing to take the pain away. We've just taught the uh, individual a strategy to arrest the micro movement. Mm -hmm. Another one I had a, a patient was that yesterday. Yeah. And uh, we had to go into the hitchhiker uh, approach where they externally rotate their hands and they pull with their pecs and lats down through their shoulders. That arrested their particular uh, micro movement. So Great athletes, every single one of them that I know of is managing something. They've learned yeah. the strategy. So our assessment of the micro movement, we, we usually learn that it's come from an overload of compression or shear, or they have too much uh, flexion of the spine during a heavy deadlift, or they do a butt wink at the bottom of their squat or whatever it happens to be. And I say, well, as long as you continue that, we know that's what the cause was, uh, you will continue to uh, have these micro movement driven pains or they're going to get uh, worse. So, you know, we would limit the depth of the squat or maybe choose a different, why are you squatting? You know, if you bounded mm. up the stairs of an apartment building or a, a stadium, for example, that might make them to be uh, a, a better jumper sprinting kind of athlete if that's why they were doing squats. But, you know, whatever, I'm, yeah. I'm just saying maybe we can change their program uh, and make them an even better uh, athlete um, by avoiding the cause. But anyway, those are two uh, athletic cues that we could use. Now, you can't walk around all day long braced up like that either. So then we have to teach them corresponding relaxation strategies. We might do what we what, what's called a standing hover, or it's an adaptation of what you'll see in the Olympics where an Olympic lifter, some of them, come out, address the bar, and they stand there, and then they just lean back a little bit and look up. They're rehearsing the movement, but they're letting the tongue fall to the back of the throat, just cooling the neurology. Mm -hmm. So that might be a strategy to cool down the brace and make it appropriate. So you're, all, you're, you're teaching them the dexterity of tuning to get through life to compete at a high level, but also just walk around with, with, without all that inappropriate stiffness. Anyway, there's a, a beginning mm -hmm. of what it is. Um, and you asked me for what, a, what cues can the trainer use mm -hmm. um, and some of the problems with that. But again, every time a trainer or a therapist works with a patient, it is an assessment. Mm -hmm. It is a training session. It's everything, it never ends. I don't see the difference between what is therapy, what is rehab and what is training. Yeah. To me, it's just a continuum. It's a rainbow that just has a big spectrum and it's a, uh, a continuous uh, effort. Yeah. And so that I think brings up a, a, an interesting question because you mentioned that you mentioned those two bracing uh, strategies that 
the athletes or the uh, the clients can utilize. So when we look at the timing of abdominal contraction, when somebody's, let's say, you know, you've got a mother who is trying to pick up their, their child, their toddler off of the floor, and let's say they've had some back pain, maybe because of pregnancy or something like that. Is there a way to get back to not having to necessarily prep their body for that, but regain that anticipatory contraction to minimize those micro movements? Or is those something, are they just going to have to utilize that strategy in all those different types of situations? Ah, now I know I'm talking to a student of Bill McElroy. (laughs) The anticipatory. I got it. Well, uh, there's several things there. First of all, I don't think she has that because of pregnancy. I think pregnancy then had something else that's causing the pain. Did you Mm -hmm. you get, I just want to be uh, clear on that. So we would figure out, oh, well, you don't have back pain because you've been through a pregnancy, you have back pain. And with the pregnancy, this, this, and this happened. And now we've isolated those variables. So we have a target in in all of this. But, um, you know, and I'm thinking of the story you told me about your hip going into internal rotation and causing what you perceive as SI problems uh, that, that I could run uh, with that uh, example as well. But let's go back to the anticipatory idea. You know, because now I know your academic background, that most of the time we run on engrams. These are movement tapes that are stored in the motor cortex and the spinal cord for doing things automatically. You do not think to walk. Mm-hmm. You're running an engram. You, Every farm boy and farm girl knows you can take a chicken, cut its head off, and it will run along quite merrily until it bangs into the barn wall. Uh, so that engram to walk and run is in the spinal cord. It's not in the cortex. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so what you're, uh, th- there's two levels of this. First of all, you have to establish an engram that's appropriate. So if that woman, the mom, in your example, picking the child up, have has the trainer or the therapist considered the reestablishment of an engram that was either corrupted by pregnancy or pain or injury or occupation or all of these known corruptors of engrams, their job is to reestablish a healthy engram. So maybe they might start with say a short stop squat. If you know our back mechanic book, Mm -hmm. the person runs their hands down to their knees and instead of lifting with their spine, they stiffen their spine and pull their hips through. So there's an engram that if you repeat it often enough, just like every good athlete knows, it becomes the default engram that your brain goes to to uh, accomplish that bending task. So some mm-hmm. people call it the hip hinge, but make it automatic in their default pattern. Yeah. So you, you know the various scientific and clinical aspects of that with uh, your uh, training. Mm-hmm. Um, may, maybe that's just, uh, some people know, know these as muscle memories. Yeah. Oh, I'm call, I've done it so many times. It's just muscle memory and I let it happen. And great athletes, they get into what's called the zone which is simply they're running engrams 
and they're in the zone and the flow just brings up one engram after another, a very appropriate engram, a highly tuned engram. And uh, then once in a while, they have to modify those as the game or the sport or the wind or whatever the situation calls for. Yeah. Uh, you modify that uh, base engram and uh, there you go. Yeah, awesome. All right. It's so, so interesting, though. I'm to, not to interrupt, yeah. uh, nope. but I'm just thinking: what are the things that disrupt engrams? It's so interesting when we were working with the police, for example. Even when they were in civilian clothes, they would walk with one hand way out to the side, and we were trying to figure out why do they walk like this all the time? Yeah. It's because they wear a duty belt when they're on duty, and they have a gun on one side, a taser on the other, and you know you can't walk normally with your hands at your sides, and uh, that. That becomes their default engram, and yeah. guess what? That's the engram that they call upon. Um, or you might have someone who has valgal collapse in their knee on one side, or they have, uh, uh, you know, I, I never thought much about orthotics growing up, or uh, ankle uh, athleticism, or eversion. Uh, inversion, uh, you know, I never yeah. thought about that until, you know, I'd be working with an elite runner and they do have SI uh, joint pain plus hip impingement on one side. Hmm. And you can just follow the mechanics of the valgal collapse, turning that knee. And when you do the orthopedic test, oh, no kidding, they are colliding the anterior part of the femur with the uh, labrum of the hip every time they run. Yeah. However, if we can do some reprogramming with a little bit of external rotation and create a new engram, plus perhaps an orthotic, plus perhaps you know something else, yeah. uh, really address the cause, uh, they don't need to have a surgeon come in and alter their labrum we went in and changed the cause. Do yeah. you think altering the labrum and then sending them right back with that inappropriate uh, engram will get rid of the uh, uh, hip impingement and SI pain that's going to resurface a year later after yeah. they took the time off from the surgery? So it's yeah. so key to uh, know the sport know how to assess, know enough about neurology, mechanics, psychology, uh, you name it, but basically kinesiology to mm -hmm. figure out the mechanism and how to intervene on the cause. Yeah, I love it. Um, I know, because you're mentioning there the, um, the ability to not just seek out band-aids to problems, right? Really finding, as you said, the cause of like what's actually causing this. It's not just, you know, SI joint pain. It's not just hip pain. There's something else. And so once again, going back to what you said at the very beginning, a really good assessment is going to show you the pattern, the cascade effect of biomechanical issues, within the body neural issues within the body that are going to, you know, obviously you're going to see this cascade all the way up the body, right into the back, but we're going to eliminate non-specific back pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we've started talking about it. And uh, so we might as well continue SI joint pain. 
because this is something that um, I've experienced and I know there are a lot of people out there who experience SI joint pain as well. So would you mind just discussing a little bit before we get into how to adapt training for these individuals? What are some of the primary causes of SI joint pain in the, let's just use like the general population. So not necessarily elite athletes, but the general population. All right. Well, I'll give you the two major ones that we see uh, and have seen for the last 40 years. Um, this is the pelvic ring and we have a spine, the sacrum and the ilia, which are these two big uh, hip bones, some people know them as, uh, that form the pelvic ring. Uh, so uh, this pelvic ring is somewhat flexible uh, in that it makes it more robust actually under stress. So there's a joint at the front uh, that allows little micro movements, healthy micro movements, mm -hmm. and the two joints at the back where the sacrum connects to these ilia. Now, the two major causes of SI pain, the first one is not SI pain pathology at all. It's referred pain. Mm -hmm. So most of what people come in here and they say they've got SI pain, it's pain in this region. So uh, these are the two dimples of Venus or the two dimples either side of the top of the butt crack in their yep. low back. Um, they say, that's where my pain is. And they think because of the anatomical location, it's the SI joint and it isn't. Mm -hmm. It is the sciatic nerve that is formed by uh, this nerve and this nerve, uh, L4 and, sorry, L4 and L5, they come down through the SI joint area. And mm -hmm. because they have joint pathology in their low back, it radiates to their SI region and they're treating SI pain, which is a complete mistake. So once again, the assessment shows what is the true cause of their SI joint anatomical regional pain. It may not have anything to do with the SI joint at all. Mm -hmm. So that's the first Probably in our business here at BackFit Pro, the number one cause of perceived SI joint region pain. Mm -hmm. But true SI joint pain usually is damage to the joint itself. Mm -hmm. um, it usually comes from inappropriate training or high energy trauma. Mm -hmm. One of the first tests we might do is a manual compression test. So if we squeeze around the iliac crests, do you see how we open up in this fashion, the bottom of the SI joint? Do you see the flexibility yeah. occurring there? Yeah. So that distracts the bottom of the joint and compresses the top of the joint. Now the person might say, if they have laxity in the top half of the joint, they say, oh, you just took my pain away. Good, let's go for a walk. Oh, there's the pain. I'm gonna apply more compression. Oh, my pain just went away, fabulous. Or I might try around the greater trochanters, which does the opposite. It compresses the bottom and opens the top. And they'll say that either makes the pain worse or it makes it better, one of the two. Mm -hmm. And then there are different muscular strategies that you can use to stiffen those micro movements that are aberrant or damaged. Yeah. Um, and over time, you will arrest those micro movements as the normal stiffness, just like a healing ligament, uh, for example, would uh, slowly add some 
stiffness and desensitizing the pain in an ankle joint, uh, yeah. for example, or it might be quite permanently and plastically uh, deformed. Um, so that is uh, usually a slip and a fall. They slip on ice, they land on their pelvis, and they crack the SI joint. And unfortunately, this past winter, I had two people arrive here in wheelchairs. Mm. Both were from slips and falls on the ice, which they weren't so bad. And then both went to clinicians who manipulated them. Mm. And then they got into real trouble. They had a fractured uh, something in the SI region. Mm -hmm. uh, both were slightly different. And uh, they uh, were, were really disabled afterwards. Yeah. Um, now, the uh, other mechanism, when I said a tra inappropriate training, there are some people who say, oh, squats are bad. Uh, they cause back pain. As an alternate, do one-legged work. So one-legged squats, Romanian uh, or, or, or a split squat style. Some people call it a Bulgarian yeah. uh, split squat, for example. Yeah. And then they might put the Romanian one-legged deadlift combination in there. But the point is this. If you have one of your legs forward and one of your legs back in a ele rear-elevated Romanian uh, uh uh, style, one-legged, um, one half of the pelvic ring mutates forward and the other half mutates back. Look where the stress goes, right to the SI joints. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is commonly seen, say, in rackets players. I had one of the best squash players who overtrained heavily loaded split squats, thinking it would make them faster and more mobile on the squash court. Uh, it, it really ruined their, their career. In fact, it, it heavily compromised their career. I don't think they ever won again. Hmm. But the point of it was someone told them, oh, you should be doing lunges with uh, 60 pounds of resistance in each hand and go deep, uh, et cetera, not realizing that there's a biological limit to that. Yeah. What are you thinking with that kind of a training volume? So it was a trainer who didn't understand the demands of the sport, nor understood the biological uh, tipping points and limits of different body parts and violated uh, principle 101 of adding uh, very large increments in uh, training volume. Yeah. So, you know, this was a person caused by a trainer who ended their very high profile athletic career. So have you seen, um, and let's, let's just use it, an example of a, an individual maybe who has had some form of SI joint pathology in the past. So we, like as a trainer, we wouldn't want to load them excessively in those split positions. So split squats, whether they're rear foot elevated or not, lunging, would we have you ever seen then if they start to do bilateral lifting, so whether it be a squat or a trap bar deadlift or something like that, have you seen because maybe the musculature in and around the area has spasmed to try to stabilize, have you then seen that cause pain as well, even bilaterally in somebody with SI joint pathology? I've seen it go both ways. Yeah. So uh, sometimes they're, uh, like, like to, to use your word spasming, uh, I mean, that's a very controversial, 
thing these days to use that word, but I, I get what you mean, and that's fine. And and yes, if that's the reaction to the instability, the body tightens up and locks a muscle. That is a, a real problem. Mm -hmm. But I so uh, that would be inappropriate use of bilateral squats or hex bar squats or trap bars. I, I think you used the word trap bar. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, the next person comes in and that's the stiffening pattern you need to hold the pelvic ring together and engineer out the uh, micro movements and pelvic ring laxity. So now they're taking load again. Yeah. So get away from the heavy split squats, go back to the squats, which someone told them were bad for them. Yeah. But so do you see, you know, I know it irritates me. It irritates people sometimes when they ask me a training question <laughs> as if there is a magical singular answer. And my answer yeah. is, well, it depends. I yeah. have to do an assessment and figure out one exercise is absolute magic for one person and it's poison for the next. It yeah. depends on what the uh, situation calls for. Yeah. I love it. So a final, I guess, topic that I want to hit on is another common injury. And the reason I'm asking this is actually because I had somebody when I was presenting at a conference, not about the back or back pain at all, but they came to me asking about facet joint. They had been diagnosed with facet joint syndrome and basically nothing worked for them with regards to, to taking pain away, uh, not sitting and not doing anything and not moving either. Like everything caused pain. So for those who maybe don't know, because facet joints aren't when, you, when we look at the spine, they aren't necessarily always the joint that most people look at. They look at the intervertebral joint, the disjoints, as opposed to the facets. Could you just talk a little bit about facet joint syndrome and what it is? We know, like you talked about micro movements as being one of the, the causes of facet joint syndrome. And then what, like, what can we do about it? Is it, is it just as simple as, once again, identifying those micro movements, dealing with those, minimizing them? And can we ever get back that uh, the decreased inflammation and, and regain some of that cartilage in those facet joints? Okay, I'm going to replace the word facet joint syndrome with knee joint syndrome. Could you answer the question? I doubt it. What, what exercises would you do for knee joint syndrome? It's a garbage mm -hmm. term. Facet joint syndrome comes from someone who doesn't know uh, how to assess and create a specific diagnosis and understanding mm. of the pain. I'm sorry to sound so arrogant about this, yeah. but the person didn't have uh, facet joint syndrome. They just had a diagnosis, uh, nonspecific from someone who probably didn't know how to uh, really assess it. Mm -hmm. So let me talk a little bit in a general sense about facet joints, and then we can get into some typical uh, mechanisms. So the uh, you can consider every spinal joint to have three joints. Everyone understands the disc, as you've pointed out. But then there are these two joints either side uh, that are articulating. There's a hole down the middle that houses the spinal cord. Mm. So these are articular joints with ligaments to them. And you will notice that if a person loses disc height, now the facet joints squeeze together and they have to take so much more load. 
So when someone has facet joint pains, almost always it's secondary to a disc. Hmm. Almost always you will find they had disc pathology a couple of years prior. So do they really have facet joint syndrome? No, they usually will have some, some disc ogenic pathology and now uh, they uh, maybe to treat their disc, they did repeated prone press-ups mm. from a therapist because that might have worked for uh, reducing the disc bulge. In so doing, they so overloaded the compressed uh, facet joints that now the person has facet joint pain. It's, yeah. not, a, it's not a syndrome. It's very specific. Yeah. It was an inappropriate uh, exercise and well-intended treatment but they, they've done it for two years now, and now they've got really cranky facet joints. Yeah. Now, you can wind down uh, some types of, of disc joint pain very quickly. It's very difficult to do that with a facet. A facet takes usually three to four months to start winding down the pain sensitivity. Hmm. Remember now, it's, it's overly compressed. Um, and it usually, if you follow the principles of spine hygiene, which I show you in, in my book, uh, Back Mechanic, mm -hmm. uh, generally you'll start to see the facet joint sensitivity wind down after uh, two or three months. Now, if, the, uh, if it's a stress fracture, so the facet joints are held on with little bits of bone. This is called the pars interarticularis, which takes all the stress when you load a facet joint. Um, on Now, here's a really good use of MRI. Um, you will start to see edema in that little pars joint well before the stress fracture occurs. Mm. So if these people have a stress, so say they're a baseball pitcher and the coach or the strength and conditioning uh, person for the team has them doing a lot of full range motion, repeated rotational extension through repeated flexion rotation to the other side. That's that bending back and forth creates repeated stress strain reversals and you will see a little bit of edema starting to form. However, mm -hmm. there's an orthopedic test where you can test for that. You have the person prone, uh, you pull on their ankles in traction, you clear the knees. So now you're creating a shear load right on that pars bone and you just give a little uh, rotation to the pelvis. And if the person does not have that stress fracture starting in the edema, uh, it won't cause pain, but if they do, it it could be. So yeah. it's it's not a it's not a test. If they don't have pain, you know that that's the facet joint. It, it might be a referred pain yeah. to the facet joint. So anyway, we'll 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 get at through a series of tests with quite good precision what the mechanism of the uh, pain is. But there's no such thing as facet joint syndrome. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I don't know if that helps or not in trying to understand. Uh, yeah. So facet joint pain is, as you said, typically secondary to some other disc pathology. Because the facets guide joint motion, if the joint motion is perturbed, it mm -hmm. really overloads the facet joints. Yeah. So do you treat the facets or do you, do you treat the perturbed joint motion? Yeah. But anyway, the assessment guides, it yeah. shows you the 
the, the, the way, follow yeah. the assessment. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so one other question before um, I go through kind of my little lightning round that I like to do at the end of every podcast. Uh, when it comes to, so if I fear have, those. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's really easy. Um, it's a test, but it's pretty easy. Um, so when we're looking at somebody who has excessive motion at, you know, one segment in the spine over another, which is why they're typically having some sort of pain in that area. It's doing too much. It's got too much stress. Would you then, would you recommend that they develop more stiffness first? And once the pain and everything has uh, decrease the sensitized tissues have calmed down, then we start to add the movement back, not trying to gain more mobility, but just trying to get the normal range of motion that that client or that individual had back into the spine, like even it out over all of those joints. Adam, what's the two word answer? It depends. It depends. Exactly. So it might be uh, just because you see a restricted joint, uh, don't think that that's the joint that's causing pain. It might be the joint above mm -hmm. that is now being stressed to be more mobile. Uh, so, uh, or it might be the joint itself. Now, what's the cause of it? Can it be adapted to uh, become a functional state once again uh, in its uninjured state? If the answer is no, then you now have to create a movement strategy uh, to desensitize the pain and that's where you're going to uh, reside. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, don't tell me that you can't uh, hit a home run in pro baseball or any of these other things. We've got people in the UFC, pro baseball, you know, you name the sport, yeah. and uh, they are able to make up for that with more hip athleticism uh, as an example. But uh, I, I'm thinking of one particular person who wasn't an athlete, but came to me with a really stuck joint. And if you looked at their back, you would see one spinous process sticking out. That was an antalgic joint and it was stuck. Hmm. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, I tried to do some thoracic extension and uh, some relaxation strategies, and it really wasn't working with the person. Uh, so they, I sent them to a manipulative person who was able to work that stuck joint back into a conformation where it could have uh, movement again, and uh, they are well on the way now of balancing up their spine. Mm -hmm. So now I've given you two examples. One was a stiffening, controlling kind of strategy. And there was another where I had to call in uh, some, I do not have the manual skills to manipulate yeah. and work a joint back into confirmation. I can think of another example of one of the great athletes uh, who was a, a double Olympian. They were mm -hmm. an Olympian in the summer games and in the winter games. And they came to me uh, with uh, pain, uh, pain uh, back pain, and, and they were really 
squatting inappropriately. Neither sport required a deep squat, and yet they were squatting deeply with load, mm. bending their, their discs and create, really using up training capacity for that when they didn't need to. But yeah. they were training with a coach who said, well, you've, you need deep squats. Why? They hadn't mm. really assessed the demands of both yeah. sports. Um, but anyway, I did my best, and we got them pain-free, moving well. They were starting to compete again, but they still had a little nag in the quadratus lumborum region. It was what people known as a trigger point. Mm -hmm. Well, I can do my best to calm down the joint so you don't get sympathetic trigger points. But in this case, I couldn't finish the job. There was mm -hmm. still this pesky little trigger point. So I sent them to a manipulative guru who I knew in their country and within three treatments, it was gone. Hmm. So, you know, and again, I know there are these people on the internet who say, oh, there's, there's no time for manipulation, no time for dry needling, it's all baloney. Really? Uh, hmm. You know, I really question the, the dogmatic stances of some people. The assessment will show you. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, there's a, a time and a place for uh, virtually everything, but don't be not judicious with it. I don't know how to say that double negative now. Be judicious, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Make it an action. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if I'll put in a plug now. If anyone's interested in uh, gaining the expertise to really assess a back, uh, we put our master assessment course online. I didn't think it was going to work, but with the COVID situation around the world, we mm -hmm. couldn't travel anymore, so I did it. But uh, it's uh, close to 20 hours of you know classroom learning, so to speak. It's mm -hmm. lecturing with uh, many different workshops through it, and we workshop every single test. And uh, then afterwards, uh, the delegates can work with our two uh, master uh, instructors, just with uh, a group of eight, I think. We, we all have a Zoom call and we workshop each other's techniques. And uh, they've become really good at, uh, you know, how hard do you push? Well, pretend there's a strawberry, squish the strawberry. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Through, through, I think it's called alliteration. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, you can really develop manual skills to feel and perceive things in mm -hmm. patients uh, through these things. So it makes you a better teacher. But anyway, I just thought I'd uh, let that be known yeah. that uh, those who, who, don't still believe in non-specific back pain, I suppose. <laughs> um, awesome. There's no such thing. Yeah, I love it. All right, lightning round. You ready? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, not good at this, <laughs> but go ahead. All right, just first thing that comes to your mind, um, top three books on any subject. They can even be your own books if you would like. No, oh, well, of course, that's why I wrote them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, my own books. So there's none better if you want to deal with back pain. Um, I don't read many uh, books. Uh, usually when I, I go to bed, I'm so tired, I just fall fast asleep. But I, I recently I have reread uh, Anti-Fragile by uh, Nicholas Taleb. I don't know if you know that book. He, he yeah. actually mentions our work in there. 
um, uh, he's giving examples of anti-fragile medical uh, treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is I ro- read uh, Welding for Dummies. <laughs> that was a, a recent uh, book. I, 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 if you like woodworking, I do as well. I, I built a few boats over the years and uh, nice. I uh, enjoy any kind of handiwork, but I was just cleaning up my welding skills this winter for a, a dock on the ice. Nice. And then my wife bought me a book for Christmas, Takea. And that's the native word for uh, wolf in uh, Salish, native culture on our West Coast. And it was a little bit of a documentary written by a woman who uh, discovered this wolf on an island uh, not too far from Victoria. Mm. And uh, she went to this island uh, quite regularly and filmed and uh, followed this wolf for quite a number of years. But uh, it's a very nice uh, story of uh, uh, biology, psychology, social constructs of uh, wolves. Nice. I love it. Three new books to add to the book list. All right. Um, I, I, I don't know why you're listening to me about books. <laughs> I actually, read, read Back Mechanic, Gift yeah. of Injury. Gift of Injury is a good read with Brian yeah. Carroll. I actually... I, I half expected your answer to be, I don't read books. I read um, articles. Like I read research Yes. because there's yeah, a lot of people true. who I've, who I've interviewed. It's like, I, I don't actually have to, like most of the books I read are either textbooks because it summarizes a lot of the research. Then I go back and I read the research, but that's typically with what I do with education. That's typically what I read, right? right. I don't necessarily read books for the sake of reading books because they don't necessarily have the time. But, right. I um, must admit, being retired now, uh, uh, you know, I've always read technical manuals on how yeah. to do something, but uh, I'm slowly reading other interesting things. <laughs> awesome. Um, top By the way, do you want to know what uh, I, I have two libraries here? Of course, when I left the university, I left almost all my books on the bookshelf and I just invited the graduate students to go in and help themselves. Yeah. There were a few books that have been, you know, personally signed by some, you know, great people that I, I kept, but most mm-hmm. of my academic books, I just said, uh, take them. But I, I have two sort of private libraries, if you will, one by uh, Bruce Lee. So mm-hmm. uh, he wrote a lot. People don't realize that. And when you gave the example of striking and then pulling back the, the fist very quickly to create that snap, that very much was a Bruce Lee uh, uh, coaching cue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is Muhammad Ali for uh, people think, well, is it a sport reason? Yes, it is. But it was much more uh, of the man, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just a terrific figure to me yeah. in uh, world history and what he was able to uh, create in terms of a, a social influence. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating to me and very, very admirable. Mm-hmm. Uh, question number two, top three mentors through your journey. That is so difficult for me to say because I've been through several phases of life now and each phase I can pick out a top mentor. Uh, and and, and w- how did those mentors come to me? You know, they say the, the teacher arrives when the student 
lets them. Yeah. And I think it was very much uh, a case for me. You know, I think of in high school, not the best time of my life. I, I, I will admit that. And uh, there was our football coach, track coach, and history teacher, Ralph Colucci. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he took us out on the track and just about killed us. And the biggest lesson I came away from that was you can endure a lot and you won't die. Yeah. And that has served me uh, very well. I still see him to this day. Mm. Fabulous man. Um, I guess when I left University of Toronto and I started biomechanics at University of Ottawa, I had to do my uh, core of mechanical engineering. And, uh, you know, statics, dynamics, the math courses, uh, strength of materials. I, I failed every midterm in that first term. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into? But there was a, so I was a little older at this time and there was a, a fella in my residence, uh, a guy named Griffith Ince. And he was a, an older fella as well and was a musician. And uh, he realized he wasn't gonna make it in the world as a, as a musician. So he thought he'd be a sound engineer. So he started studying electrical engineering and he was a year ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, Griff, what's all this, uh, you know, uh, the trig identities and some of the tricks of algebra and whatnot. And he said, well, it's just this. And he made so much sense and he came from the same background as me. And he said, these are the things that you have to memorize. And these are the things that you can now figure out as you go. Mm. And that got me through my engineering uh, in, in, in my master's degree. And then, uh, as I said, at, at the hockey game, I met Professor Bob Norman, who really turned me into a scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are, but you know, when I was a, a professor, I only, you know, you go into professor's offices and they have their degrees on the walls and various awards and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I had one degree on my wall. Do you know what it was? You, you'll appreciate this. I'm a graduate of the traditional boat building school of Brooklyn, Maine. <laughs> uh, that was the, that was the only uh, certificate that was on my uh, wall. I love it. Um, all right, last one. <laughs> You've got a basket case here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love it. I love that. I love that. Um, it's like, yeah, it, it's actually interesting because walking into, you know, somebody's office once I, I saw on their wall, as you said, they had all of their degrees, certifications, all that. And then there was just this random one on the wall. I cannot remember what it was, but it was so obscure. I walked in and I was just like, that doesn't seem like one of these things doesn't belong with all the others on the wall, but I love that that was the one that you put up on your wall. Was it because it, you felt like it defined you more than the rest did, or is the one that you were most proud of? Is that why you had that up on the wall? Um, I wanted to downplay the formality of being a professor, mm. I, I think. I, I, my mother has always said, you're just a reverse snob. And, and uh, basically, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a blue collar guy who's been in a white collar job. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, 
anytime I head off over my academic career was spent in the wood shop or the metal shop or, yeah. you know, and, and that so helped us because a lot of our experiments, we built our own equipment mm-hmm. and that gave us so much dexterity yeah. and the creativeness and the experiments that we, uh, that we did. Um, I love it. Anyway, that's uh, probably why uh, I uh, had that up there. It wasn't a hard certificate. Everyone in the class got one, but uh, anyway. That's awesome. Um, all right. Last one. What piece of wisdom or advice would Stu of today give 20 year old Stu? I've been asked that one before. None. Life. Uh, now I'm going to sound like Jordan Peterson. Life is a struggle. And you got to fight the fight and the struggle. So I, I, I wouldn't have given any advice to make it easier or to take a shortcut. You know, who knows? I might have ended up with a different woman and not my wife. I might have ended up, you know, you, 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 uh, I just live life. Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't have even have, I, I'm, I'm not giving that advice. So yeah. I, my answer is none. Yeah. I love it. All right. Um, I know you've already chatted a little bit about the uh, back assessment course that you have. Uh, are there any other products, projects that you are working on or would like to promote before we sign off? Well, our website, backfitpro.com, really is the repository of our work. Uh, if you go to that backfitpro.com, there's two portals of entry. Either you're a back pain person wanting information and some guidance. So you enter through that one or you're a clinician and you want a little bit more uh, education. So that's where they'll find our, our books. Uh, our courses are now online. Um, we have uh, some little self tests for patients to do sometimes. Yeah, I'll give you an example. If you're sitting uh, at a desk job and, and sitting causes your back pain, put your hands palms away from you between your back and the backrest of the chair and then sit upright. If that makes your back more comfortable, you will probably do well with a pneumatic uh, support, Mm -hmm. which you can then inflate. So we created those. uh, We created them for those who've had disc surgery with a little scallop out in the middle. There's a a family of those uh, uh, as an example. All my previous podcasts, uh, academic papers that I've written. Uh, there's a lot of content on that website. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to chat. Um, it's been a while and, um, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to share with myself and our audience and, uh, you're a gem. Thank you very much, Adam. And uh, good luck with uh, growing your podcast. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.